Hey there. Before you listen to this week's Pen to Paper Press podcast episode, it is important to let you know the conversation I had with Richard Linton does contain sensitive material. I have silenced a small section due to its descriptive nature of what he witnessed. If you prefer to skip the section of the conversation where he talks about his experiences in Warzone, pause the recording at approximately 22 minutes and fast forward to approximately 26 minutes. Please do not listen to this episode within hearing range of those who are sensitive to these topics. Portions of this episode are not intended for those under the age of 18. Thank you. Welcome to this episode of Pen to Paper Press Podcast. I'm Cindy Coaches. I enjoy spending time with best-selling authors, writers, editors, publishers, and creative souls to talk about the process of developing our stories to completing our works of art. Each episode is an opportunity for us to explore mindsets, pearls of wisdom, and the experiences that began our journey as a writer from the moment we put pen to paper. Richard Litton has joined me in the studio to talk about his experiences as an author and give us a realistic impression on how hard it can be. He, as he shared with me, it, if it is worth doing, it is worth doing well. In addition to being an author of North Korea Deception, his second book in the Deception series, Hyde Park Deception, is set to release the 1st of October. Richard, it is good to have you here. I could quite literally spend most of this episode sharing your biography, such as you served as a captain and tank commander in the British Army. You are a professional actor with roles in the Equalizer, Creed, Blue Bloods, just, you know, to name a few. (laughs) You have a television show in Philadelphia where you speak with local authors. And this list is extensive. I'm just scratching the surface. Thank you for taking this time to talk with me. Well, thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Great. How how are you? (laughs) (laughs) I am doing well. And initially, I wanted to ask you, when do you have the time to write? However, for us writers, that is a calling that we, you know, we can't deny it. Truly, we can't. So it's not a matter of making the time to write. It just happens. How does it happen for you? Mm-hmm. That's a great question, um, Cindy. And I, I always ask that question of my guests on my on my uh, local TV show here. But yeah, I mean, I think um, so. Originally, we're talking, you know, ten to fifteen years ago when I began writing. I would go to my local cafe, you know, in those days, everyone, cafe culture since you know, before, before COVID obviously was, was, uh, you know, very popular. So I had this wonderful routine. My, my, my two boys were very young, you know, the sort of kindergarten, you know, uh, nursery school. So drop them off. Um, and then I would just go to the cafe and I, and I needed that hubbub. So I would have my routine of, you know, two or three hours uh, in the morning in a cafe, in my local cafe, you know, a couple of couple of coffees and um, and that and because I was an actor as well, if I had an audition, you know, I'd obviously take the morning off to go and audition or in the afternoon. But I generally found that the morning time was best for me. Um, and so I did that for several years, I would say five to 10 years. I had that regular routine. And then and then I stopped writing for a little while, you know, acting took over a little bit. And then basically during COVID, um, you know, suddenly we all had all this time on our hands and my routine became, I, I used to do a, a mindfulness class. So what we did is every morning we did the mindfulness class at like nine o'clock uh, from nine till 10. And then I found that all the other time I would get up say six, five or six, I really started to get up early. And I found that was the secret to getting finishing off these two books that I had been writing for so many years, about 10 years. Um, so I found, I found in the last sort of year to 18 months that that is that early morning time, because there's so many other distractions. Now my, my son's one son has now just gone off to college. Um, you know, I'm doing, doing more acting. Um, 
But I think, you know, for me, I, ha- I found that that golden time, as I were, before the emails start coming in in the morning, um, before <clears throat> there's any other distractions, um, you know, you have to have that what I call golden time. And then, of course, you know, 10, 11 o'clock, things start happening. And, and, and as, as you know, as much as you want to, you just you're out of the zone by then and, and, and stuff in the day is happening. So, you know, I know, I know people sort of, you know, have different times that they can, um, different amounts of time that they can put into writing, but whatever that time is, um, I find that if you can do it on a regular basis, you know, that really helps. And if it's, if it's half an hour, if it's an hour, I also, my other little habit to get into my writing in the early days was I, I would read my favorite author, which in those in the beginning was sort of, you know, John Le Carre or Daniel Silver, uh, Michael Connolly. And I would just read a couple of chapters of their books because they inspired me to write in the first place. And I found that was a kind of helpful little thing just to get into my writing. And then I would sort of crack on. Interesting. Um, A lot of, I find that a lot of creatives uh, as a whole, not just writers, that morning time is a sweet spot before, as you say, life gets busy or, or the emails start rolling in or the interruptions start happening. It's kind of like that, that sleepy time for the world, (laughs) but us creatives are up and we're like digging in and, and doing our thing. One of the things I wanted to ask, because of the of the topics of your books, you're having to do a lot of research. Um, I'm assuming that this is not all made up, <laughs> that it's um, based on some factual. And because of your background, you're not doing the topical, you know, on the surface kind of research, uh, you know, for the details. Um how much are you relying on your intuition when you're finding information? How, how much of your intuition kind of determines this is what I want, this is what I don't want, or are you strictly going by the techno, technological, okay, this is the facts, this is what I have to write down? Um, that's, that's a great question. I, I recently read, I think um, it was uh, David Baldacci said, you know, this one chapter he had written, he he sort of read about, I don't know, something like 20 books or something. And I thought, well, that's a, that's a little bit steep. I'm not, I'm not that, I'm not that sort of research oriented. <laughs> but, the, but for the first book called North Korea Deception, um, it's, it's a British journalist who uh, is, is on assignment in the Russian Far East and he becomes embroiled in a, a secret Western conspiracy to blow up a North Korean nuclear reactor. And, you know, I, I, I had been to that part of the world. It's a fascinating part of the world where China meets Russia meets North Korea. So that was sort of the first inspiration. But then I realized um, in order to write about North Korea, I, I definitely had to do some research. I always find I find North Korea fascinating, just like I find, you know, East West Germany fascinating, that, that idea of, you know, the sort of wall and, and things change so very quickly behind that wall. So East West Germany, North Korea, Russia, that sort of border there, China, um, you know, like Israel, Palestine. I've always found those those sort of that that geographical proximity where things change very quickly. Even, even, even I live in Philadelphia, even Amish, the or Amish country, you know, I, 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 when I first got here, I just couldn't, I, I was so fascinated by that. And you know, I drove out to Lancaster County and I, that sudden geographical shift in such a, in such a short distance. So, so, so for North Korea, obviously I did have to find out more about history. Um, I, and so I, I read about, I would say about all the, basically, I went on Amazon and, and, and I bought all the non the North Korea nonfiction books I could find. So that was probably about eight to ten, if I recall. And you know, it's kind of tough some of these nonfiction books because they're very sort of academic. But you know, I got through <laughs> them and I just got some. I just got some flavor. I got some tips. And and to answer your question, I mean, it had to fit my story. You know, I, I definitely was looking for snippets of truth to to make the story real. Um, and so, for example, one one thing I discovered when I was researching North Korea deception was that there was an area, there's the River Tumen, T-U-E-E-T-U-M-E-N, and um, 
it, it runs through that area, sort of China, North Korea, and it's called the Tumen region. And I and I read that there was some sort of you know United Nations um, economic aid or sort of uh, plan for that area rejuvenation. Um, so so anyway, so that was actually perfect for sort of my plot and helped to help me to 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 you know propel the plot forward. Um, so I mean, mainly it is definitely how I feel the story should go. Um, it's definitely not based on you know fact you know facts don't really come like the history doesn't come first it's more you know the story it's all about the story isn't it really so for me especially as a thriller writer because the most important thing you know I'm not I'm not you know Charles Dickens or Emily Dickinson or whoever you know I'm not a literary fiction writer I'm a good old-fashioned commercial fiction thriller page turner that's that's what I aspire to be that's what I try to do and so you know it's all about it's all about um you know, that next, that next step, that, that uh, creating that conflict and that unexpected, unexpectedly. So in other words, the, the story is the most important thing. Yeah, the, you're, you're right. It's moving the, it's moving the reader through the book, not just flipping the pages. But what kind of, I forget, to, I forgot, I forget if you told me what kind of books do you write again? Well, I have, <laughs> I have published two. One is a quote book and one is on journaling. Okay. Uh, it has journal prompts and, and so forth. Right. I have written, uh, I have completed two first drafts on fictional books. Uh, definitely not thrillers. Um, <laughs> it's more, more of a general life kind of uh, storylines. Uh, I am in the process right now of writing a memoir and I have hmm, three or four other books that I've started. And one of them is more on a spiritual level. Another one is on, I would say not a how to, but more on creativity and how our health is reflected in our, you know, how our health affects and, and adjusts our creativity. Because as you know, um, you know, having written that how you feel and how your body is functioning, you know, our foods impact so much of our, how we feel and and our environment and and so forth and our stressors how all of that impacts um it affects our creativity and so that was kind of that's the premise of one book that i'm also currently writing kind of sort of <laughs> not a great answer but <laughs> anyways right now i'm focused on the memoir i kind of bounce between the the creative book and the memoir uh depending on where i'm at emotionally because the memoir is kind of rough to go through so so is that the main focus would you say the memoir is the first one going to be up up on amazon um out of the two of them i that is my goal the memoir um because you're not aware of my history um and and not everybody here in in the audience uh is either uh Four years, four and a half years ago, uh, my oldest son died. And a year later, I I had to let go of my past. And in doing so, um, I decided to sell my home. And in order for me to heal from the grief of losing a child, I chose to basically disconnect from all things known. And I went, that's why I'm in a camper. And I am three, three years in a camper uh, doing, quote unquote, the remote living or, or nomadic living, whatever they call it. Yeah. And I like remote living because I'm not, I can move right. or mobile living. <laughs> Maybe I'll make up a new phrase. <laughs> so that the story is not on, on my son because that's his story the memoir is 
me getting through the grief and the intention of helping other parents understand that it's it's a journey that we are we are to walk that we can't just lay in a heap of i mean still there are days where i would like to you know lay in that heap of pile of of tears you know of of wet kleenex and and so forth but we have to live forward how did he die uh it was suicide oh my goodness that's really tough so um yeah it's been it's been interesting to to maneuver through all of this and writing the writing the memoir uh brings up a lot Mm -hmm. and you know i thought i was emotionally ready for it and at times i am and at times i am not so that's why i think i bounce between the two books so emotionally ready for writing the book or finishing the book or you or something else did you mean writing writing the book okay writing the memoir so oh that's really tough well i'm sorry to hear that that's okay. a has a whole whole different layer doesn't it the the suicide thing um and then there's a sort of you know i would imagine there's a sort of i know someone at my local church that happened to there's a, like a stigma that people it's not just that someone died, but it's just, it's like people just don't know how to deal with talking to you about it, right? Or approaching you. Correct. Uh, double layer of sort of, you know, um, you know, tragedy and, and people, and, and I guess I would imagine, I have no idea, Cindy, but I would imagine, you know, most people tend to just sort of not try and they, and then they just, and then, and then people have found that they're sort of cut off, I would imagine. Um, I don't know if that's how it was for you. It's it's very difficult, it, and it doesn't matter how the child uh, dies. It, it really doesn't. The stigma is pretty much the same. It doesn't matter if it was due to a long illness or if it was an automobile accident. Um, the stigma is still there that people don't know how to talk to they don't know how to talk to the grieving parent. They don't know what to say. Um, the worst thing you can do is is avoid them. I had people who would see me uh, in the grocery store and would literally uh, do a 180, walk back no. out of that aisle, and, or they would quiz me. And how did he die? Why did he die? You know, um, and there were a couple of people who wanted the gory details. And it's like, are you kidding me? No, this is not. (laughs) I mean, if people say to you, how are you feeling? Is that, is that, I always think, is that a silly thing to ask? It's like, well, how do you think I'm feeling? I'm feeling like, you know, S-H-I-T. I mean, what, 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 what do you feel is the best thing to say to someone? All right, as we're talking about it, let's let's find out from someone. Like, please tell me because because you know, God forbid it happens again. But you know, I always think saying, "Oh, how you feel? How how's it going? Or how are you coping?" That always sounds terrible to me. How you're coping? You know. Well, people would ask, "How can I help you?" And I would, you know, initially, you know, the first couple of months, I I would bring my son back, you yeah. know, make him come back, you know, because that's where I was emotionally, and the thing that you can honestly do is talk to the person you know talk to the grieving person without avoiding the topic of the child because you'll you'll know real real quick whether or not we want to talk about our children we want to talk about our children because to us they're still living they're just not in the physical form they're they're with us you know for many of us we can feel their presence and and we still have that that connection with them we just don't have the physical and we want to talk about you know that crazy thing that he did when he was blah 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 or oh my god I remember the time he did such and such we want to we want to share that and we want to not only share what happened with them, but to help keep the memories alive as well. Um, listening is is the biggest thing. And, and for Pete's sakes, don't give us advice. 
And uh, an individual, I won't go into much detail, after two weeks asked me, he, it was a, it was a man, asked me, when are you done with this grieving stuff? I'm tired of your crying. And I'm like, it's not like I broke up with my son. He's, you know, he's gone. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I, I will grieve forever. And basically that, that moment, that statement uh, ruined uh, a very long-term friendship. Mm-hmm. And it, it, well, it didn't ruin it. It shifted. I'll word it that way. It shifted our, our relationship. So I mean, that's, that's kind of fascinating, isn't it? How, how you can know someone and then just one thing they say or, or do just literally you've known them for five or 10 years, say, and then, and that, that can change, you know, you just, you just lose respect basically. I mean, I, I, you know, I can't give any examples now, but it, it is, it's happened to me and you just think, mm, I think I'm, I'm, I'm moving on from you now. You know? <laughs> well, it changes it, our I was going to say, you know, traumatic life experiences, and again, it doesn't matter what the experience is, Mm -hmm. because when traumatic events happen, our perceptions of what's important shift. Yeah. Um, Obviously, you served, um, you, you served in several wars. So how many times did your perception of basic life things shift you know your relationships shifted i'm you know how was it for you in in that regard um i mean it's it's you know if i guess i mean i was in gulf war one i didn't really see too much death and destruction there because we were we were freeing the uh the kuwaitis and we were in the desert and 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 some of my colleagues you know literally had to shoot shoot you know iraqi iraqi soldiers um and um but i didn't so that was good that was good but in bosnia you know um you um i did see some things in bosnia um for example we were i mean there were 1500 shells a day landing in sarajevo when i was there so yeah, it was crazy. Um, you know, I had a few close calls. Um, but I, I, what happened for me, I think when I finally met real death and destruction, which was, for example, in Croatia, when the Serbs were ethnically cleansed. So everyone knows about Serbs ethnically cleansing other people. But I was in I was in TV at that stage. And we were doing a, a story in this little village about how um serbs were being you know ethnically cleansed and we were we saw this plume of smoke in the in in the village in in the plavno valley it was um and so we went to investigate because we were a tv crew we were untv and every every house was on fire and we sort of passed we, we passed this row of of white vehicles with no with no military or police signals on the side except for one and i just remember thinking that's really odd there were literally about 20 empty you know minivans and and suvs and we continued literally driving up this sort of stream because it was almost there there was almost to this little hamlet and you know there was there was a lady there her house was on fire she was crying um and she took us inside her house and um, excuse me, and her husband had been shot in the back of the head and he was lying, he was like you know, 80 plus, he was lying in his pajamas on the floor. I always remember seeing like a chamber pot, uh, you know, next to his bed, the, the image that's seared on my brain forever. Um, and so basically these, these soldiers had come through and ethnically cleansed their village, basically. So they'd shot him and we um and then her friend i i I couldn't even believe what i was hearing you know she said my friend's husband's been killed too i said what and so she took us you know a few houses up and sure enough her friend's husband he was lying on the kitchen floor with this and so 
what what happened in the immediate sort of stage of that you know terribleness for me was i kicked into sort of journalist mode we we literally filmed it and we i interviewed them i i, I thought that what is the best thing i can do for this situation and that is tell people about it and so um you know i, I literally just interviewed the woman and i i even i i remember this it's so funny i remember making her start a sentence again because I wanted a full and complete sentence so that when I cut it together for the story that I hope people would see you know so I went into total sort of professional journalist mode mm-hmm. um and then you know and then you just afterwards I don't know uh, I, I forget the specific question you were asking but I guess afterwards you just it does give you a different perspective on life and an appreciation of life but also I found that when you get in back into say normal world so when I would come back to London on leave and everyone would, and people would sort of say oh how is Bosnia and and I go oh it's you know it's pretty it's it, it's has its moments or it's tough in and, and I thought well, what am I going to do start telling them the explicit details of the of the of the murder and carnage I saw you know are they really interested no because both most people just getting on with their own lives they don't really care really and then if they really did care then they would ask me more questions and so I would you know tell them story a few stories um but um you know I guess I guess I'm going to touch wood you know it wasn't it wasn't wasn't personal for me you know it was a job I was a soldier and then I was a UN TV producer and and so it wasn't so I I think you know as much as I admire all these war correspondents that we see in Afghanistan and all over the place uh, and how brave they are you know I think it's it's easier in a way because you're detached right it's your job it's not like you I can't even imagine what you went through um and you know my my wife's um uh, uh, brother died of, of drug overdose so so you know she she's gone through that so I, I I've asked her a little bit about it um and then and then in fact his son can you believe also died of drugs so I mean it's just terrible you know like sort of you know family family what families can sort of slip into um you know, tragedy, what they can be said. But anyway, she she's probably like you. She's, you know, overcome adversity and she's just been, she's just full of positive energy and she's made the best of it. And I think, I think coming back to our original conversation where we started, you know, I think you, one observation I guess I would have is that I presume, and again, I don't know because it hasn't happened to me, but I presume you just have to decide which, which your fork in the road, am I going to go down the, miserable and 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 sort of you know negative path or am i going to just keep going and make the best of this um and it you know it sounds like sounds like you're doing that too you know be, being going out and being positive when that when that sort of tragedy happens i can't even remember if that answers your question but <laughs> <laughs> i'll pass no, it back to you <clears throat> the we were yeah we were talking about my memoir and and the premise you know what the baseline for the memoir is and then you know people's perceptions and and how they you know people the reactions Mm -hmm. to those that are grieving um and it is a lot of not knowing how to do it or not not that they don't know how to talk to those that are grieving. They just don't have the understanding because they themselves have not been there. So they, it took me a, a bit to understand that they were doing their best to communicate to me that they were acknowledging me as right. an individual right. and as a mother um because at first you want to take it personally you know why are you asking me these questions you know or or why are you avoiding me and it took me a long time to understand that they were avoiding me because they didn't know how to be with me they didn't they didn't want to hurt me anymore or they didn't know what to ask or they didn't know what to say so it's easier to to just walk away and then our conversation shifted into the perception how we perceive life after we've gone through a traumatic event Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, for, for me, it's, I have a, 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 a deeper sense of, I laugh deeper, I live deeper, I feel deeper. Um, it, it's kind of like my grief expanded my heart and my emotions to really have a deeper sense of compassion and understanding for not only myself, but for the person beside me, you know, or the person standing in front of me. I have a, a, I'm someone who doesn't hold judgment. Um, I mean, yeah, I hold opinion, you know, like anybody else. I'm human after all. But I, I tend to not hold opinion because we're all people doing the best that we can. That, that's kind of my way I approach things. But I have a deeper understanding and compassion for how somebody else is feeling about whatever they're going through. And, and so my question was with the traumatic events that you have gone through, because obviously I've not been where you are, where you have been. And so that perception, you know, or the question was, what was the perception shift for you? And yeah, you you shared that. (laughs) I remember being in a little, so I would go back and forth across the front lines, the confrontation lines, you know, between the Bosnian Muslims in Sarajevo and the Bosnian Serbs on the outskirts. And it was, you know, again, that was a fascinating experience, just sort of being able to go from you know one world into the other in my un vehicle with my blueberry and um i remember going uh, you know past the front line and 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 literally the front line what i mean by that it was literally like a trench that you could stand up in like first world war almost and you know with sandbags and a little wooden hut and i remember i would meet the soldiers on the side of the road crazy and we stop and have a chat and and then and and they're literally looking at the bosnian muslim army which was literally only like 50 to 100 yards away on the other side of this trench and they occasionally like take pot shots at each other and occasionally try and uh, kill each other uh, you know if it was fierce fighting or maybe there was someone would perhaps lob a shell in near them so then they would start a firefight i wasn't there for that but they would you know tell me stories uh, on both sides of the confrontation line so it was it was really sort of interesting to me as a as a soldier and as a peacekeeper to you know to to talk to them. and i and i spoke i speak bosnian so i was able to actually communicate pretty well with them um but it, it sort of reminded me of of this um for, i think it was a first world war movie i must have watched when i was like i don't know 10 or 12 it was black and white i mean this is years and years ago and i just remember in the movie the germans and the British, they get up on Christmas Day and they and they walk towards each other with with bottles of wine. And they literally started toasting with each other um, to celebrate Christmas. And they, you know, because they had a ceasefire and then they went back to their trenches and they started shooting at each other again. You know, it's just so extraordinary to me as a kid. I just remember what a profound I, you know, sort of um, impression that that idea left on me where you're you're killing someone one moment and then you're sort of friends with them next. And it was similar in Bosnia because, you know, the, the guy, I remember so saying, Oh, my cousin, you know, I saw my cousin the other day. I'm like, what a minute, your cousin on that side. And he's like, yeah, yeah. He's my, he's, you know, he's Muslim. He's married to a Serb. You know, they were all intermarried. They were Serb married Muslim and it wasn't just Muslim, Muslim. And, and, and then, and then there were Croats. So there was like the three, you know, the, the Catholic church, the Croat and the Serb was the, the, the Russian Orthodox church. You know, one put it, simplistic terms religion and then the the muslim was the was the muslim faith muslim religion um but anyway and and then so one of these soldiers i remember you know invited me to his house and it was like a delicate little village little porch beautiful daughter he had like she was 16 i i interviewed her because i did a video i was actually doing like a video diary for the bbc um which by the way i will if if anyone's following i i actually yeah i'll just tell you the book trailer for book two is based on a lot of i used all original footage that i shot in bosnia so look up hyde park deception or or my amazon page or um uh, on my um facebook page you can find this this book trailer anyway 
So, so I went to this family and, and, and the guy said, Hey, let me show you my, he said, I'm going to the front line. Let me show you my, my, here's my, my grenades. And he showed me like a belt of grenades and here's my ammunition. He showed me, and he's wearing like a, a plaid shirt and jeans. And I said, well, you know, and he had like a camouflage jacket. And I said, is that, is that your uniform? He said, yeah, there's nothing else. And he was wearing sneakers and he was like, and I said, well, when are you, when are you going back to the front line? He said, oh, I, uh, tomorrow, tomorrow, you know, I have one day off. And so he was literally going back to this sort of trench thing. And, and again, this was for me, you know, it was 90, what was it? 1994, I guess this was, um, you know, it was, it was like going back in time in a sort of world war two movie. And then I came back again a few weeks later and I, and I, and I, uh, you know, said, I sort of said hello to the, the, the wife and the daughter. And I said, you know, where's, where's Darko? I think his name was, I forget, but, and they said, he, he's disappeared. He's disappeared. And, and, and basically, you know, what that meant was, you know, missing in action. And, and, and they were pretty 99% sure that he'd been shot and killed somewhere, you know, in such a short space, space of time. So, I mean, again, and so I thought, well, what on earth do I do right now? I, I'm sort of, you know, this official figure. They don't know me. I don't know them that well. So I just remember just sitting down and, and being, like you said, ready, ready to listen, you know, and, um, you know, trying to be, trying to be, well, I wasn't trying to be positive because you, you can't be in that situation. But yeah, I just remember, I had a lot of those experiences in Bodmin. I mean, there were people always dying, you know, soldiers, not coming back from the front line so i guess as a united nations military observer i i try i i you know wanted to try and be empathetic and and show empathy especially as i spoke the language and i guess do my tiny bit as as a member of the you know international community Mm -hmm. to just show that we weren't all about politics and we weren't all about you know telling them how to live their lives which is sort of what book two is about it's set in bosnia it goes back to the hero jack Steele, and he's now a united nations military observer in bosnia and and you know it's again it's com- good old-fashioned commercial fiction page turner but you know i'm basically trying to show how incredibly hard it is and complex and complicated and crazy you know war is when you've got like three different sides and then you've got an international community and then you've got the europeans you've got the americans you've got the russians all with their interests um yeah. and you've got the death and destruction in the middle of it all and it's also crazy and, and and terrible and pointless so anyway that that's that's just by way of saying that's sort of the inspiration behind behind book two hyde park deception which as you kindly pointed out is coming out on october 1st so how many books are you working on in this deception series well i i mean it's 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 you know it's however many i want i mean daniel silver my my hero's written 20 <laughs> so, <laughs> so i mean i i um you know i'm i'm sort of starting to work on book 3 um and and it's you know i think i think one of the things as a writer nowadays especially as an indie author you know, I, I found out pretty early on that, um, you know, you want to write a series, right? Because people enjoy series. I mean, I, I, I'm the same. I love a Netflix series. I am much more likely to choose a Netflix series nowadays than, than a movie because, you know, you get into it. And by the way, I have to say just Fauda, if anyone hasn't watched Fauda, F-A-U-D-A, it's about, you know, Israel-Palestine conflict. And it's, there's three series on Netflix and, um, it's literally my favorite show of all time. I think I, 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 I never watch a series twice because I just get bored because I know what's coming. But this right. is the one exception I made. So if anyone wants a great thriller series, um, uh, political thriller, you know, you've got to watch Fowler and there's three series. Um, the acting's fantastic. The, the, the casting is fantastic. The story is fantastic. And it, I think one of the reasons it's so popular is because it, it it shows both sides in a kind of quite a humane way, which which is very very hard to do with that whole Israel Palestine conflict. Um, but anyway, so so oh gosh, where was I? I just lost my train of thought. Um, so 
do you remember where I was? <laughs> <laughs> we were taught you had just brought up taking a, a you know being an indie author. So go oh, ahead. the serious thing, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so one of the one of the business decisions I made was, you know, I thought right, this is going to be a series. When I when I when I sort of finally decided at the beginning of COVID to to publish the books i just thought i've got to i've got to just go through them again and make sure that they're they're going to be a series so it's book one book two and i you know came up with this series name the deception series and then there are all sorts of business reasons and amazon reasons and you know why you want a series um and so yeah so that's what i decided to do but to ask you yeah i mean many more hopefully many more it's just it's just writing a book um you know there's so much to talk about but uh, I'll just start by saying, you know, it's, it's 35% as the writing. And I hate to tell anyone out there who's, who wants to publish, but and then, then it's like 75% marketing and all the, all the BS that goes with that. I mean, you there, I just, I literally spent, you know, months and months and months just listening to uh, courses and, 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 and videos and free videos and how to publish videos and it's just never ending. I just give you one example of how complex it gets. Like, so Amazon, um, I have a marketing account in 13 different territories, U- UK, Canada, Australia, Italy, France, Germany. And, and so, so you're managing all these accounts and then, and then in each of those territories, you're allowed 10 categories of where your book is. So mine is, mine could be a military fiction. It could be military political espionage it could be um mystery thriller suspense it could be um eastern european there's all these different categories but but and each category is a chain of about five or six words but every territory has its own way of classifying these 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 um categories so you literally have to sort of go through each territory and say okay that's a thriller book a political thriller. what are all the categories and then you have to sort of enter all these different categories for your ebook and your paperback, which are also different. Oh, and that's just one example of the insane detail, the insane never ending list that there is when you, when you, you know, when you publish, um, whether you're, you know, traditionally published or, 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 or indie published, you know, it's, you still got to get out there and, and get your book to the readers, you know, who like your stuff. It's crazy. It it is it is crazy, and one of the topics that keeps coming up lately in the podcast is writers um, not wanting to or questioning whether or not it's worth hiring an editor, hiring a, a PR person, hiring somebody to help you market, and a lot of um, it you know. Well, let me. Let me interrupt because I, 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 yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I, I, I sort of, I, I definitely kind of disagree with the premise of your question there. If it's worth high, like you have to hire a professional editor. I mean, there's just no question about it. Your money, you know, let's say you have three to $5,000 um, to spend on everything. Um, you know, a, a professional editor to do two passes of a, of a, of a manuscript of say, you know, 340 pages for um, uh, 100,000 words. Um, yeah, my novels, I think is about 100,000 words. So, you know, they're going to charge you probably between $1,500 and $2,000 to do a professional edit. And the first time I did um, my book, so I did the editor, that was where the bulk of my money was spent. And, and there is just no, you're wasting your time if you think of you're going to publish a book without, and I mean a professional editor, like um, my editor is called um, change it up editing Candace Johnson. Like she does nonfiction, she does fiction, but you know, not someone who you just found on Fiverr who calls himself an editor. Um, so I just want to, just want to be really clear about that, you know, because I, I just don't want to get any doubt with people thinking they don't need an editor and you, you know you're going to ask aunt joan she's because she's written she was an english teacher or something you know <laughs> just doesn't work thank you um, thank you, know, you gotta, and if you haven't got the money then you just got to go out and earn the money until you've got the money because because it is so competitive like once you put your book up there um 
you you know it's it's really up there and it's really exposed and and people i read another article once and it said that the, the guy was a book reviewer and he said you know if there's more than 50 typos in a manuscript that's that's really not good and i i hope and i'd like to think my my first book north korea's deception does not have that well i i know it doesn't because because i haven't had any feedback that it does but you know that was that was so that was a you know an editing process two passes then there was a proofreading phase and that was another thousand bucks now i've gone back and forth on the second book um because when i when i when i did the audio book for the first book i found things but i didn't find too many things i mean i would i read it the entire thing out loud so i really found stuff you know but it but it was you know 12 to 20 i would say ma- major sort of you know repetition of words or or missing commas or something it wasn't wasn't too crazy but my point is you know a proofreader again you really really should hire a proofreader which is different for an editor you know they're really just catching the, the the sort of double space in between words or or a not aligned paragraph or a typo or you know a miss a word is you know gouge instead of gauge someone caught for me the other day in my second book um now you could i heard mark dawson who is a big indie author person he does lots of courses i'm sure people have heard of him and if you haven't then you need to find out about it so mark mark dawson who's english does a lot of uh, courses on how to write books and publish books and then david goffran g-a-u-g-h R-A-N is another fantastic, fantastic resource, free resource, mostly um, written tons of book on how to publish. But anyway, um, they talk about, you know, proofreading and you can sort of get uh, people on your email list. I've got like, uh, I actually won't say how many people I've got on my list at the moment, but it's getting up there. And, and some of those people have volunteered to read my book so you can get them to maybe give some, this is my second book. Um, that you know some of those people will actually give you physical sort of corrections if 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 they want to you know it's up to them you know if you have like five or ten advanced readers that's another way of getting your proofreading done and then another way obviously again and again I didn't do this like I didn't do this the first time I didn't and this is going to sound really obvious but you know before I gave it to my editor this time on the second book I read my book out loud physically out loud now you might people might say well didn't you do that before i just i just sort of maybe mumbled you know i would go through and i would mumble da, 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 but not <laughs> out loud as if i'm reading an audio book and i re and it took me when i did it for book two before i gave it to the editor to my editor uh candace you know it took me probably two weeks to just be able to spend two hours a day reading say two chapters a day out loud um Anyway, so so these are some of the things that you've got to think about. And uh, there's so many people out there because you can, like physically, you can just publish your book now on Amazon and other platforms. Mm-hmm. You know, the competition is that much greater. The um, the So you've got to be good. You know, you it's just not worth doing unless you're going to do it properly um you know people people typeset i have a book and the other thing is that i have an interior book designer and uh, you know he's very reasonable hourly rate and you know again for me instead of trying to do it myself and there's there's mistakes and the, the stress especially when you're publishing a book for the first time you know I, again i would recommend uh, my one is called the book couple um gary rosenberg but you know, they will take your manuscript, your docs file, and they will, you know, transform it into what it needs, um, the EPUB file. Now that, again, that filled me with horror when I didn't. And I, and I, and I know you can learn how to do that, but again, it's just another headache that you don't need. And if you can spend a few hundred bucks, a couple of hundred bucks on getting that interior book designer, but just to finish my mini lesson on my, publishing experience the, the main the other main source of income the other main source of expense must and should be your cover designer and you know i know you can get covers like you can get generic covers and you can put you know your title on which again i just think you can sort of spot a mile away um and so so what i did is i spent a, a lot um you know several hundred dollars on a book designer 
and I love him and he's great and he's done two covers for me and I think they're spectacular mm -hmm. the way I did that was I actually went into Barnes and Noble and I I literally just looked at the covers thriller genre covers and I and I I turned the page over and I I tried to find out which publishing company and sometimes the book designer themselves has their name in the cover and I literally reached out to this guy on, on LinkedIn and you know a couple two or three I reached, <laughs> reached out to and you know two of them didn't get back to me at all but this one guy it was it was a quiet Sunday I remember it was really fun and he got right back to me and then we were on the phone together and and I and I loved all his covers and he'd written you know he'd done covers for like big time authors so I was like in awe I was you know um, <laughs> so exciting to meet like a real book designer cover but anyway so so my point is simply you know I did end up hiring him and he sort of gave me a special indie rate because you know he works with the big publishing houses so you know really recommend I'm so proud of my cover and, and it's been you know now I, I just did a book signing at Barnes and Noble and there's they did this this wall of like 20 of of North Korea deception it looks so cool just seeing all the cover um you know and, I, and I'm just so every time I see the cover you know I'm just pleased that I spent the money on it basically so anyway um so that's that's I'm not sure where that where where we started on that one <laughs> Hey, it's all good because and one of the questions i was going to ask you uh because you do interview uh, yeah. local authors and that and that was going to be one of the things that i asked was what is something that you consistently hear mm -hmm. from from writers you know what what is the consistent pearl of wisdom that they have to share and about I, what about, about writing about writing and getting published mm -hmm. and i think you hit it all <laughs> oh really well i'm not yeah maybe i mean i do ask that question um and i think um you know i think that um actually one thing i said which i which i didn't just say once because someone asked me that the other day at my book signing you know what part of was I? and i think you know you got well all, all that stuff that we just talked about is kind of admin and, and background BS and marketing and business. And, and yeah, it has to be done. I'm sorry. It, it really is three quarters of the work. And mm -hmm. if you don't want to do all that, then, you know, you might be lucky and talented enough to get an agent and a publisher. Um, I mean, I tried that like five or six years ago. And then I, it was such a long process, you know, you apply and then you, you, you might hear back from agents within, you know, three or four months sometimes. And then even if you were lucky enough to get a deal, um, you know, it will be like another 18 months or two years before you're, you know, and then, and then, and then apparently like, if you, if you want to go and do a book signing, you sort of have to ask permission of your publisher. So anyway, I decided I'm not doing all that, but then it's easy to make that decision, but then you obviously cutting out, you're giving yourself a ton of, ton of, ton of work because you've got to do everything. Then you're the publisher, you're the marketer, you're the, um, you know, you do things like this, the, the podcasts and getting your name out there. Um, one thing I would also say to people um, is that, you know, you've got to be passionate about that one story that you have. Uh, and that is key, 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 because you're going to go through that. I mean, I must have done 20 drafts of my manuscript for the first book. But I but because because the story, I was always really excited and interested about my story, this this idea of North Korea and China and Russia, that sort of kept me going. And and so when people ask me that same question that you just asked, you know, that's another thing I would say is that you've got to find that seed of your story that that. Um, that really, you know, excites you because you're getting, you know, you're getting up at five or six o'clock and you're going to be spending two or three hours with that story. And then once it's finished, you've got all the editing and the proving. So you've really got to believe and be passionate about your story. And the same with this book too, for me, you know, it was Bosnia. Bosnia was so fascinating for me. I really wanted to try and give people an idea of what it was like to be, you know, a United Nations military observer in Bosnia. So, you know, I came up with this, this, this sort of, you know, James Bond-esque type scenario, plan, um, story, plot, 
And, but, you know, it's based on me being it. And one of the, one of the things I get from my readers, which is really nice is, is they say, you know, I can really tell that you would, you've been there, whether it's on a Russian train in the Russian far East in, you know, Vladivostok or whether it's in Moscow, or whether it's in Bosnia, um, you know, in, in being, being shelled with 1500 shells a day in Bosnia, um, they can tell I've been there. Mm-hmm. That, that's really nice for me. <clears throat> well, and that's, um, that is, an important element in in the story is being able to feel to as you're reading to slip out of you know your mind and into the character um and to feel what they feel and see what they feel and smell you know absorb the five senses of the person that you're reading um and that's a gift and you don't get that if you're haven't been there or if you you know for those that you know uh like uh steven spielberg obviously star wars you he wasn't up in space right right. he mentally was able to put himself there (laughs) it's a mix of the two isn't it it's 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 a mix of the two i mean i wasn't in you know the potential palace in in pyongyang and you know the north korea leader and and you know i i that was obviously total embellishment there's a scene where he's like you know stro um i should we say in english stroking his 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 cats petting his cats you guys say but anyway i i I, you know so i remember thinking well how do i imagine him sitting there with his peach colored satin cushions and and uh, you know so you know so so that was one example where it was totally made up obviously no research available Um, (laughs) no they don't give that away yeah that's not something you can google (laughs) but no so i i think i think you know that is the point it's it's um, it's being able to do a mixture of both right to to use your own experiences and um and then and then um and then you know uh make stuff up if you need to sort of you know use your imagination i remember i remember my mother used to say to me you've got a very vivid imagination (laughs) you know (laughs) and i think think that was true and and probably is true and and i've you know i've used that in my writing is there i mean we have covered so much ground and and at one point you were actually interviewing me so kudos i can tell you're uh, <laughs> somebody who professionally interviews people actually actually to that point just to, i just did want to add that so you mentioned that the tv show so so yes i do you you can find the show it's called author hour if you if you go if you go on youtube and put author hour with richard linton and linton is spelled l-y-n-t-t-o-n so it's called author hour with richard linton and you know that fell into my lap but i i just i just tell people about it as an example of you know a you can meet i i i interview you know non-fiction and fiction thriller um you know whatever it's it, they just have to have a local connection it's local tv here it's it's um you know my local what do you call it public public service tv or whatever it's called but anyway the point is that that you have to again another thing you have to do once you're published you know, is you have to find a way of getting your name out there. So, so this was funny because literally it literally fell in my lap. I mean, I went to my local library and I said, you know, will you do, will you, would you like my book? And they said, Oh yeah, great. You know, and they knew me from way back. I used to take my kids in there when they were two and three years old. So, so they sort of knew me and I said, and I, and I, and I, I sell, I am, you know, I'm on QVC. I sell food on QVC. And they were like, Oh, well, wait a minute. You should meet, you should meet um, the, the folks at Radnor TV um, because that he's looking for a so he's looking for some a host for the new show for on writing, so it was yeah a perfect match you know me being I'm used to being in front of the camera as an actor so it wasn't difficult for me to, the, I mean the hardest thing is just finding new people which isn't hard now once I've done a few episodes because sort of people right. come but anyway my point is you've got to find stuff ways to get your name out there whether it's writing whether like you're you're doing a podcast or whether it's writing articles or blogs. You know, that is another, I say, unfortunately, because it's work, but, you know, that is another big part of success being successful. You have to find a way of getting your name out there because then people will look you up and then they'll see that you've written a book and then they might buy your book. So I just wanted to mention that is another part of the sort of social media slash, um, you know, media game that you have to do. Yeah, yeah, it is. And and as writers, we tend to be reserved or 
I don't want to say antisocial because that's incorrect. We just tend to be solitary individuals and, and putting ourselves out there is like, I gotta do what? You want me to go what? Where? <laughs> I don't want to do that. I don't right. want to be seen. I don't want to be. Right. I like my little silence. I know. <laughs> but let's face it, it's so much better now. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't mind going local, but you know, the thought of having to do like a book tour <laughs> all over the country, and you and you and you know, you go to bookstores, and there's like you know, 10, 20 people there. I mean, that's a, that's a tough, I mean, that you have to do that and maybe that will start happening again, but let's face it with the zoom thing. Um, I know this, that Daniel Silver just did a, um, you know, virtual book or all, all these big, big writers are doing that now. Um, and I mean, it's just so much easier, isn't it? Let's face it. Uh, than go. But then on the other hand, I, I, I like, I don't, I don't, I like to interview people in person for my for my my tv show and and i again i feel there's a big difference between just doing it on zoom and 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 being in person so all my people so far have been in person um and because uh, i just feel like people are, are really kind of fed up with seeing people on zoom right <laughs> well, had human touch. i mean there's something about being in somebody's space and yeah. and being able to reach out and shake their hand yeah and there's that human touch thing is, you know, it's priceless. So, yeah. but I'm not inviting people into my camper for one. There's not enough room. <laughs> it's cozy. I wish I was sitting with you. It looks really cozy. It is. It is cozy. I definitely not big enough for you know a whole lot of people in here. But <laughs> people know. Do you tell people that you? you zoom the record you zoom your podcast that people know that you're sitting that we can see each other you know what's really interesting is um with the podcast recording uh perfect example and i've mentioned this in other podcasts is the episode with crystal cockerham i believe it's episode number eight mm-hmm. we we started recording our interview and and yes people know that i'm recording this uh on video but i'm using the audio and the owner of the campground was mowing the lawn so you'll hear the mower come and then wait the lawnmower is going (laughs) away oh gosh yeah yeah pause when it was getting up because he was next to the camper so there would have been no way that anybody would have heard a word we said um i've also had times where you know i've had big semi trucks go past uh at other campgrounds or i've had people in the next campsite make lots of noise or dogs and or my dog you know (laughs) so but you know with like uh martine felton and i can't remember which episode she's she's in new york city and so you know we hear the sirens go by you know so i think to me that is one of the really unique elements that i have is that i'm not in a closed in studio that's soundproof or or whatever life happens not only you know in the camper because again i've got a dog who occasionally barks <laughs> or crunches on his dog food but life happens outside of quote unquote the virtual studio so and i think that's a unique thing because life is messy life is not you know studio living it's not exactly exactly yeah. some days it would be nice because i think we get more sleep if we didn't have more all that stuff going on outside but <laughs> but that's a whole different story for a whole nother day so anyways obviously Richard you and I could talk for hours um that that is quite clear um because you and I have definitely hit a lot of uh territory uh we've crossed the oceans and we've been in war zones we've been in you know all sorts of different places is there anything that we haven't touched on that you would like to close with um no just just to say um thank you for having me and um keep writing everybody um you know one one word one page at a time 
um it is it is never ending like like this the, the to-do list of a writer is basically never ending there's always something you can do so just know that you know you and you've got you've got to be able to switch gears you've got to be able to concentrate on the thing you need to do right now because that's the other thing otherwise it will devour you and you'll become and and anyone who's done their first book knows this it just becomes so all-consuming because there's so much to do mm-hmm. and i just promised myself on the second book that i would just learn to say okay it is what it is don't worry about that what have i got to do right now for the next hour or so so hyde park deception um it is on pre-order right now um we're in uh, august so it comes out august uh, october 1st on amazon uh being paperback hardback and i will be doing the audiobook um that won't be ready just yet um but uh you know please and and visit visit my website drop me an email richard at richardlintonbooks.com if you have any questions uh you can sign up for my email list um and you know the more the more the merrier and always happy to answer questions about writing if you want to reach out to me of course and i will have your uh website on the show notes page and Richard, I thank you. Thank you so very much for taking the time to <laughs> be here with me. Before we end our time together, I'd like to say thank you for listening to my conversation with Richard Lytton. To access his website and purchase the books he has written, visit the show notes for this episode at pendapaperpress.com backslash podcast. To receive future episodes in your inbox, subscribe to the Pen to Paper Press newsletter. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite application. Take care and until next time, keep your pen to paper and write. Your words have power. Your story matters. Bye for now.